This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The reigning Los Angeles Lakers took on the rising Detroit Pistons in Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Thus far, the series had been a back-and-forth affair. The Lakers had just managed to beat the Pistons in Game 6 by the thinnest of margins, a single point to force a winner-take-all seventh game. Despite being surrounded by a hostile crowd of Lakers fans in California, the Pistons managed to take a five-point lead going into halftime. But the Lakers came back in the third, outscoring the Pistons by 15 points. The fourth quarter was the tensest yet, with the Pistons clawing their way back within striking distance. With less than a minute remaining, they were only three points behind. To suppress the Lakers' powerful offense, Pistons coach Chuck Daly sent in 27-year-old backup small forward Dennis Rodman. He was a fierce defensive player, taking pride in shutting down the other side and securing rebound after rebound. At last, the Pistons' defense got a key steal, wrenching the ball away from Lakers forward James Worthy. Pistons point guard Vinnie Johnson dribbled the ball towards half court and threw it to the first teammate he saw who was open, Dennis Rodman. Rodman received the ball just inside the three-point line. He was not a shooter. He had been told as much by his coaches and teammates. But in this moment, he had the ball in his hand without any defenders in reach. He had the opportunity to put his team in a position to win the game and the series. Glory was in sight. So as the clock wound down, Rodman jumped in the air and took the shot. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. Today, we're discussing Dennis Rodman, a dominant NBA defender who became just as famous for his off-court antics as he did for his incredible athleticism. This week, we'll explore Rodman's tough childhood and teenage years, as well as his rocky rise to NBA stardom. Next week, we'll cover Rodman's struggles with fame in the second half of his career and beyond. Dennis Keith Rodman was born on May 13, 1961. 
Both his parents were from Texas, but moved to New Jersey after his father was assigned to an Air Force base in Trenton. Rodman's childhood was defined by his parents' marital strife. His father, Philander, cheated on his mother, Shirley, constantly. Explosive fights and tense dinner table conversations were common. Shirley struggled to deal with her husband's infidelity while raising Rodman and his two sisters. She left Philander twice while Rodman was a toddler, but eventually took him back both times. In February of 1965, when Rodman was three years old, his mother finally left his father for good. While Philander was at the Air Force Base, Shirley gathered her children and ushered them onto a train headed for Texas. Rodman never saw his father again. Shirley and her children moved into her mother's house in Dallas while she officially divorced Philander and got back on her feet. To support her family, she worked as a teacher, bus driver, church musician, and assembly line worker. When Rodman asked about his father, Shirley couldn't bring herself to tell him the truth. Instead, she told him that his father was a hero who would return soon. Her son held on to that lie for a long time, truly believing that Philander would come back for him. As the years passed and no father figure appeared, Rodman receded inwards. Young Dennis Rodman was an introverted child, deeply uncomfortable in his own skin. As he grew older and started school, his shyness was exacerbated by several health issues, including facial sores and severe allergies. Rodman was badly bullied for his appearance and was never able to stand up for himself. In elementary school, other kids nicknamed him Worm because of the way he'd wiggle from side to side while playing pinball. It wasn't complimentary. In high school, Rodman tried out for both football and basketball, but didn't succeed in either. He was cut from the football team and quit the basketball team midseason when he didn't get any playing time. His coaches considered him too small and thought his skills were too rough. Rodman was devastated. He loved basketball, and all he wanted was a chance to shine. He felt inferior to his sisters, Deborah and Kim, who were the stars of the family. They excelled at sports and in school. Eventually, they both went to college on basketball scholarships. Meanwhile, Rodman struggled to find a direction in life. After he turned 18 in 1979, his mother tried to motivate him through tough love. That year, she kicked Rodman out of the house, hoping it would force him to mature and get a job. Instead, for the next six months, Rodman was effectively homeless, staying on a friend's couch and only working sporadically. Eventually, he managed to get a permanent position as an overnight janitor at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. Rodman enjoyed the peace and quiet when cleaning alone late at night, but working in an empty airport had other perks, too. One night, while mopping the floors, he realized he could easily steal a watch from a gift shop. So he did. In fact, he didn't just steal one watch, he stole 50. The next day, he went back home to his mother's and distributed the watches to everyone he knew. Shirley, his sisters, his friends, and even some casual acquaintances. What he didn't realize was that there were security cameras watching him at all hours. On the morning of August 30th, 1979, 18-year-old Dennis Rodman was awoken by the sounds of police officers banging at his door. He was handcuffed and taken to the airport jail. When questioned, he tried to lie. 
first claiming that his friends had stolen the watches, then saying he'd only stolen two. Unfortunately for him, police had clear surveillance video that showed him stealing $470 worth of watches. Rodman sat in jail for two days, anxious and terrified. Once the police and the gift shop recovered the stolen watches, they dropped the charges. But Rodman was, once again, unemployed. He needed a direction, something to strive for. He had no idea what to do next. But this time, his body supplied the answer. In the year after his arrest, Rodman experienced a tremendous growth spurt. He grew almost a full foot, reaching a height of six feet, eight inches. At first, Rodman was uneasy with his new size. Just like when he was a kid, he felt like an outcast and freak. He was uncomfortable in his own skin and in the entirely new set of clothes he had to buy. But there was one significant upside to his growth spurt. He was no longer too small to play basketball. At 19, Dennis Rodman returned to the basketball court. He played at his local recreation center and instantly became the best player on any team. A family friend recommended him to the assistant coach at Cook County Junior College in Gainesville, Texas. The coach knew of Rodman through his sisters, but was well aware that Rodman hadn't played in high school. He wasn't interested, until he heard that Rodman was now six foot eight. The coach invited Rodman to a tryout. Only 15 minutes in, the junior college coaches pulled Rodman aside and offered him a scholarship. Just like that, Dennis Rodman had direction in life. In late 1982, at 20 years old, Rodman began attending junior college. When he stepped on the court that fall, it was the first time he'd ever played organized sports. His skills were still unrefined. His shooting was questionable and he was hopeless at the free throw line, but he still managed to put up good numbers on the court. During his first few months, Rodman averaged 17 points and 13 rebounds a game while playing solid defense. His coaches saw a determined player who worked hard and put in the hours to become great. Unfortunately, he didn't apply the same work ethic to his academics, and he flunked out after just one semester. It was one step forward, two steps back. Rodman returned home more dispirited than ever. Other college coaches tried to reach out and recruit him, but he decided that he had no interest in going back to school. He swiftly regressed into his old habits, hanging out with old friends and occasionally committing acts of petty theft. His mother worried that if she didn't do something, Rodman would never make anything of his life. Luckily, word about Rodman's basketball skills had spread. By happenstance, Lon Reisman, a coach from Southeastern Oklahoma State University, had seen Rodman play during his brief stint at Cook College and decided to give him another chance. Lon Reisman was so interested that he didn't just call Rodman. He showed up to Rodman's house in Dallas and asked if he could drive him to the school's campus in Oklahoma that same day. Rodman was impressed that Reisman had driven out to meet him personally. He agreed to hear the coach out and reconsider his decision to stay out of school. On the long ride to Oklahoma, Rodman bonded with Reisman. The coach sold him on the school's small, quaint feel, far from the urban sprawl of Dallas. But more importantly, Reisman encouraged Rodman more than anyone else ever had. 
He told Rodman without any doubt that he had the potential to make it all the way to the NBA. In the end, Rodman was completely won over. That same day, he committed to attend Southeastern Oklahoma State University. He was ready to give college and his dreams of a life in basketball one last chance. When we come back, Dennis Rodman gets a second chance to be great. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1983, 22-year-old Dennis Rodman took his second shot at a basketball career by enrolling at Southeastern Oklahoma State University. Before the school year started, Rodman's coaches set him up with a job as a counselor at a youth camp to give him some extra spending money. During the five-day basketball camp, Rodman bonded with one of the children, a 12-year-old named Byrne Rich. Rich was going through an extremely difficult period in his life when he accidentally shot and killed his best friend while quail hunting. Despite their different ages and backgrounds, Rodman was a kindred spirit. He could understand and empathize with what Rich was going through. The two became fast friends. Rodman grew close with the Rich family, even staying at their farm for the last three weeks of the summer. His friendship with Rich helped the boy recover from the tragedy. Life on the farm, meanwhile, offered Rodman the structure and supportive parental guidance he was lacking in Dallas. The family also helped him deal with some of the less savory aspects of living in rural Oklahoma, like the racism he often faced from locals. When the semester started, Rodman threw himself wholeheartedly into basketball. His coaches recognized that Rodman was hardworking and took direction well. In his very first game for the Southeastern Oklahoma Savages, Rodman impressed them further. He ended up scoring 24 points and grabbing 19 rebounds. He made sure to bring Byrne Rich along with him, insisting that he ride on the team bus after games. The coaches eventually named Rich the team's water boy. By midseason, 21-year-old Dennis Rodman was the star of the Savages basketball team, averaging 26 points and 12 rebounds a game and putting the entire Southeastern Oklahoma basketball program on the map. The team finished with a shocking 20-10 record, including a playoff upset victory against the top-seeded team in the tournament, Southwestern Oklahoma State. For his efforts, Rodman was named a first-team All-American. On campus and in the town of Durant, he became a celebrity. Some of the locals who had once shouted racial epithets at him on the street were now asking for his autograph. Not all of them, though. The demeaning comments and slurs became even worse after Rodman began dating a white woman the summer after his freshman year. As his college career went on, Rodman felt a constant tension between the malicious racism he faced in Oklahoma and the praise he achieved through basketball. Perhaps to help deal with the difficulties caused by the former, Rodman fully embraced his celebrity. In the end, he enjoyed it a little too much and became entitled. He took advantage of his relationship with the Rich family and stole jewelry from them. He even forged checks in their name. When they realized what had happened, the Riches kicked Rodman off of their farm. Back to fending for himself in rural Oklahoma, Rodman felt lost and isolated. Luckily, it didn't last long. After two weeks, at his son's behest, 
Pat Rich decided to give Rodman a second chance. Once again, Rodman redeemed himself the second time around. By 1986, 25-year-old Dennis Rodman was attracting the attention of NBA scouts. But despite his impressive stats as a collegiate player, NBA teams weren't yet sold on Rodman. He was much older than other draftable players, and he had only ever played Division II basketball. Rodman put some of those doubts to rest after he played well in two pre-draft exhibition games. Slowly, his name started to creep up the draft boards of several NBA teams. The Milwaukee Bucks even started to consider drafting him as their first pick. In the third and final exhibition game in Chicago, however, Rodman choked. The interested NBA teams were taken aback. It didn't make sense that the player who dominated the two previous games seemed to suddenly disappear in the third. When teams looked closer, they discovered that Rodman had asthma, which he hadn't previously disclosed. Interest in Rodman plummeted as teams debated whether the lingering questions about his condition outweighed his potential. Rodman was left feeling more anxious and uncertain than ever. On June 17, 1986, he returned to the Rich family farm in Oklahoma to watch the NBA draft. Everything hung on that night. The entire future of his life was at stake. When the first round came and went, Rodman was unsurprised. Despite everything he'd been told by his coaches, other players, and even some NBA scouts, he still hadn't believed he would be drafted. Playing professionally always seemed out of reach to him. Then, in the second round, the Detroit Pistons stepped up to the podium to name their next pick. In 1986, the Pistons were a team on the rise. After nearly a decade of irrelevance, they started to rebound under head coach Chuck Daly. They made the playoffs three years in a row, but a finals appearance still eluded them. The Pistons were an offensively strong team, but they struggled on defense. They ranked second to last in the Eastern Conference. After being eliminated in the 1986 playoffs, the Pistons' front office realized they needed to revamp their defense to have a real chance to win the championship. So, with their second pick of the 1986 NBA draft, the Pistons took a risk and selected Dennis Rodman. Rodman was stunned when he heard his name called and could barely speak when the Pistons called him a few moments later. The riches celebrated while Rodman sat nearly motionless. He couldn't believe it. He was going to be a professional basketball player. His entire life was about to change forever. The summer of 1986 was an anxious time. Rodman felt extremely nervous about his future, acutely aware of the expectations placed on him as a surprise second-round pick. The day he signed his contract with the Pistons, he hyperventilated and had to be seen by a doctor. The entire week leading up to training camp in late summer of 1986, he felt seriously ill. Luckily, his nerves dissipated as camp began and he got back on the court. When game time came around, Rodman was always ready to play. Going into the 1986 season, the Pistons were looking to John Sally and Dennis Rodman to be starters, key components of their strategy to push the team over the top. But both struggled badly in training camp and neither made the starting five. 
For the majority of his first year, Rodman stayed on the bench, sharpening his skills while averaging just 15 minutes a game. As the year went on, Rodman grew into his role as an integral part of the Pistons' game plan. The team relied on a strong defensive bench to lock the game down in the final quarter. Rodman slowly found his groove. He was never going to be a prolific scorer, but he could help his team on defense by making life as difficult as possible for the opposing players. The Pistons ended their season with 52 wins and finished second place in their division, their best performance in franchise history. After sailing past the Washington Bullets in the first round, they got their revenge against the Atlanta Hawks by defeating them in five games to advance to the Eastern Conference Finals. There, they met the juggernaut Boston Celtics, led by Larry Bird. The series was a back-and-forth clash, culminating in a decisive Game 7. The Pistons and their rookie defender Dennis Rodman were one game away from the franchise's first NBA Finals appearance in 30 years. But in the final game, Rodman struggled. He scored only three points and didn't manage to grab a single rebound in over 18 minutes of playing time. The inexperienced Rodman was simply unable to stop Larry Bird from scoring. Bird, famous for his trash talk, let Rodman know it. The Boston offense was too much for the Pistons to handle, and the Celtics won the game and the series. In the locker room after the game, Rodman seethed. A final spot had been within his grasp before it was cruelly yanked away by Bird and the Celtics. In anger, Rodman told a reporter exactly what was on his mind, a move that would soon become his trademark. Rodman thoroughly denounced the Celtics that night and said he'd never root for them as long as he lived. Then he went even further, opining that Larry Bird wasn't a great player and only received three MVP awards because he was white. His remarks caused immediate controversy. Larry Bird responded by saying that Rodman talked too much, while the Lakers coach was quoted as saying there must be a wind tunnel between Rodman's ears. When he returned to Oklahoma for the offseason, Rodman was met with piles of hate mail. It was a bitter end to what was overall a successful rookie season. But the blowback just left Rodman feeling more determined than ever. His goals had shifted. He didn't just want to be an NBA player anymore. Now he wanted to be the best. As the 1987 season began, 26-year-old Rodman arrived at training camp ready to fight for a starting role on the team. While he remained a backup to begin the season, his playing time steadily increased through the first 40 games. During the second half of the season, Rodman was playing nearly as many minutes as the named starter, Adrian Dantley. It wasn't long before he got a real shot to step into the spotlight. On February 4, 1988, Dantley injured his ankle in a game against the Knicks. Rodman got his chance to be the team's regular starting small forward. He never looked back. When we come back, Dennis Rodman takes center stage as the Detroit Pistons make a run for the championship. Now, back to the story. It had been a rocky journey, but by 1988, 26-year-old Dennis Rodman was one of the NBA's most promising rising stars. 
After being drafted by the Detroit Pistons two years earlier, Rodman had steadily improved and had finally earned a starting position as the team's small forward. On February 9th, Rodman took the court against Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls for his first game as the Pistons' regular starter, and he did not disappoint. That night, Rodman collected 10 rebounds, scored 15 points, made two blocks, and managed to hold Michael Jordan to just 20 points. The Pistons won 89-74. With Rodman established at small forward, the Pistons went on a tear, winning 20 of their next 25 games. The team easily took first place in the Central Division. It was their first division title since moving to Detroit. Rodman's confidence in his abilities increased with every game. He learned to view himself not as a scorer, but as a defender whom opponents, even stars like Jordan and Bird, dreaded facing. The rest of the team soon adopted Rodman's philosophy. They embraced a physical, borderline dirty style of defending that earned them the nickname, the Bad Boys. Rodman's childhood nickname of Worm was revived by fans who transformed it from a mean-spirited tease into an acknowledgement of his skill. He was no longer the worm because he wriggled nervously while playing pinball. Now, he was the worm because he always stubbornly stuck to the man he defended. The former starting small forward, Adrian Dantley, returned for the end of the season after recovering from ankle surgery. Rodman continued to make his presence felt during the playoffs, stunning the crowd with a 23-point performance in Game 4 of the first round against the Washington Bullets. The Pistons beat the Bullets in five games, then defeated Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the second round. They advanced to the Eastern Conference Finals, where they faced off with an old rival, Larry Bird and the Boston Celtics. After their loss to the Celtics the previous season, Dennis Rodman had two words on his mind the entire year. Beat Boston. The controversy around his past statements about Bird had been a distraction during the offseason. Now he wanted nothing more than to beat the Celtics and prove himself in the eyes of the fans. Driven by a strong defense, Rodman and his team held Bird to fewer than 20 points a game during the series. When the buzzer rang at the end of Game 6, the Pistons celebrated in front of their home crowd. They had gotten revenge on Bird. The Pistons were headed to Detroit's first-ever NBA Finals. But the fight wasn't over yet. The Pistons still had to face the reigning champion Los Angeles Lakers, led by Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The Pistons won the first game in Los Angeles, shocking the Lakers with a 12-point victory. After dropping the next two games, the Pistons came back to win games four and five, taking a 3-2 series lead. They were one game away from securing the championship, but the Lakers managed to claw their way back and win game six by a single point, pushing the series to a winner-take-all game seven. Rodman played well in Game 7, scoring 15 points with 5 rebounds and 2 steals. But the Lakers remained stubbornly ahead. Then, in the final minute, down by 3, Rodman found himself alone with a ball just inside the 3-point line. The Lakers didn't believe he could really score from that distance. They, like Rodman's coaches, believed he was a rebounder, not a shooter. 
they didn't even bother defending him. They let him take the shot. And he missed. The Lakers got the rebound, clinching the victory and the championship. Once again, Rodman had let a chance at greatness slip through his fingers. By the time the next season began in November 1988, 27-year-old Rodman was still bitter about the finals loss and his mistakes in the last game. He focused even further on becoming a defense-only player, averaging two fewer shots per game than he did the previous season. He was no longer technically a starter, with the more offense-minded Adrian Dantley holding down the position. But Rodman's strong defense earned him more and more playing time at Dantley's expense, much to the veterans' frustration. The discrepancy led to conflicts in the locker room as Dantley let his grievances be known. After 42 games, the Pistons traded Dantley to the Dallas Mavericks. The door was open once again for Dennis Rodman. Rodman and his bad boys improved on the previous year, notching the best record in the NBA. They earned 63 wins and secured another first-place finish in their division. The Pistons went into the playoffs as favorites for the first time in Rodman's short career. They lived up to the expectations by sweeping their old foes, the Boston Celtics, in the first round. In the second round, they demolished the Milwaukee Bucks. When the Eastern Conference Finals came around, they once again faced the Chicago Bulls, led by Michael Jordan. After splitting the first two games, Jordan stunned the Pistons with a dominant Game 3 performance, scoring 46 points and giving the Bulls a 2-1 series lead. Before Game 4, point guard Isaiah Thomas and coach Chuck Daly came up with a new strategy, which they called the Jordan Rules. Anytime Jordan had the ball, they double-teamed him, preferably knocking him to the ground every time. It was a controversial tactic, one that many basketball fans and reporters criticized. The complaints angered Rodman, who felt people were showing favoritism towards Jordan because he was a star player. Fueled by that anger, Rodman threw himself into the team's new strategy. He held Jordan to only 23 points a game for the rest of the series. On top of shutting down Jordan, Rodman averaged 13 rebounds a game. In Game 6, he snagged 15 rebounds, leading to a decisive victory that sent the Pistons to the NBA Finals once again. For Dennis Rodman, everything hung on the 1989 Finals. It was yet another rematch, this time against the Los Angeles Lakers. Fortunately for the Pistons, they weren't facing the same championship team that had beaten them Two of their star players, Magic Johnson and Byron Scott, suffered injuries early in the series. On the other hand, Rodman wasn't entirely healthy either. He suffered from severe back spasms after the tough series against Chicago, and the coaches kept his playing time relatively low to keep him healthy. Even with reduced playing time and a bad back, Rodman led the team in rebounds. The Pistons easily dominated the Lakers in the first three games. Rodman delivered a standout performance in the third match, scoring 12 points and grabbing 19 total rebounds. It was the best defensive playoff performance of his career. On June 13, 1989, in Inglewood, California, the Pistons and the Lakers played Game 4. The Pistons were looking to finish the series quickly, while the Lakers just wanted to win a single game and stay alive. 
LA started the game strong and had a seven-point lead coming into halftime, but the Detroit offense surged in the second half, cutting the lead to one point by the end of the third quarter. Despite his injury, Rodman still played tough defense when he could. It was thanks to his efforts that the Lakers were shut down in the final quarter. The Pistons ended up outscoring the Lakers by 10 points, sealing their finals victory. After two years of bitter heartbreak at the end of the season, Rodman had finally achieved the victory that he desperately wanted. He was proud of what he, the team, and the coach had accomplished, but there was still one thing he needed to do. He needed to prove that he could be a star in his own right. During the offseason, Rodman obsessively worked on his rebounding abilities, hoping to earn a starting position on the team. The Pistons rewarded his efforts by releasing small forward Rick Mahorn and opening up a starting spot. 28-year-old Rodman more than lived up to expectations in the 1989 season. The team's defense became the best in the league with the fewest points allowed, and Rodman was honored at midseason with an all-star selection. After winning 59 games, once again, the Pistons made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. They faced the Chicago Bulls, who by this time had more than a little grudge against the bad boys of Detroit. Michael Jordan was tired of being beaten by the Pistons and even more tired of their physical style of play led by Rodman. He complained to the media about the Pistons, arguing they didn't play the game the right way. The media seemed to agree, frustrating Rodman. The Pistons may not have played the right way, but they played the winning way. Rodman was once again a standout in a tough-fought series that went all the way to Game 7. The Pistons dispatched the Bulls with a definitive 19-point victory in the final game and headed to a third straight NBA Finals. They won the series against the Portland Trailblazers after only four games, securing back-to-back -back NBA championships. After the regular season, Dennis Rodman was named the NBA Defensive Player of the Year. At the banquet in his honor, Rodman broke down as he addressed the media. With tears in his eyes, he admitted just how badly he'd wanted to win the award. He'd done it. After a childhood filled with anxiety and self-doubt, with several false starts, Rodman had made it to the top. He'd earned the attention and validation that he'd always wanted. And along the way, he turned himself into one of the biggest stars in American professional sports. As Rodman's success in the league reached its zenith, so did his own celebrity. The increased scrutiny meant his emotional vulnerability would be on full display to the world. But it meant that Rodman would soon discover the dark side of fame and the ways it could destroy the life he'd worked so hard to build. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Dennis Rodman's story. We'll cover how Rodman struggled with fame and failure later in his NBA career and how he lashed out in dangerous ways. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 